Well, comrade, what now? Straightforward conversation. Welcome to Between the Gutters, where we talk about the stories within the panels. I'm your co-host, Albert, and with us is our other co-host. Yo, what's up, everybody? I'm the other co-host. My name is Drew. How you doing? Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome to today's episode. So, how you been, Drew? Any Anything interesting happened lately? I know you uh, you sent us some... Wait, well, you sent me some pictures recently of a comic shop you went to. So, uh yeah, feel free to give us a little bit of a review, you know, any any updates in terms <laughs> of anything interesting that may or may not have happened. All right, all right. So uh, earlier this week, took an extra day off uh, right after New Year's Day, and I drove up north a little bit to a small town called Vacaville here in California. It's a little bit north of San Francisco, where, where we live, and... While I was there, I uh, looked for a comic book shop. I never really had been to Vacaville for any particular reason, I don't think, unless it was just to stop at a restaurant at some point. But uh, I was there for a few hours and had some extra time, so stopped by a, a comic book shop. I believe it was called The Boys of Summer or something to that effect. And the shop itself was cool, you know, it was fine. Like, the, the people who worked there seemed pretty... Regular people, you know, like regular comic book shop people. It was a small store. It was like maybe two two rooms just kind of filled to the brim with comics. They didn't really have too much in the way of trades from what I remember, but they had a ton of more recent comics, uh, especially your mainstream big two comics and Image, uh, Boom, Dark Horse, Dynamite, and so on and so forth. As far as stuff that we tend to look for when we're at comic shops, which is deals or bargain bins and things of that nature, I did see that they had like three short boxes full of cheaper back issues. I'm talking like maybe $1, $2, and they had a couple of random hardcovers and trades. Like I think they had, I want to say they had some Ultimate X-Men, and they also had the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen hardcovers for volumes three and four for pretty cheap. Like those are $30 books and both of those were on sale for eight bucks. So I, I picked those up for Shanus. But while I was there, man, at the store, this guy walked in and the store was kind of small. So whatever conversations were going on, even though I was like in the other room, I could hear this customer talking to the store guy or one of the store guys. And mind you, maybe this, this store was kind of more geared towards, uh, how do I, how do I say it? Like modern collectors or modern readers. Like I did notice okay. they had a lot of racks or on the walls, like they had all these different variant covers and stuff like that. Like nothing jumped out at me as anything particularly 
um, expensive or anything like that. Or, but then you know, I really don't pay too close attention to stuff like that anyway. So maybe there was something valuable, but to me, it was just a bunch of stuff that I wasn't interested in. Mm-hmm. But anyway, this customer starts talking to one of the guys at the store, and I guess he was he was new to the store as well because what I what perked up my ears was I didn't hear how their the beginning of their conversation went or any pleasantries they might have exchanged, but I heard the customer say, "Yeah, I just got back into comics uh, after a long time, and now that I've been back into it, I've like really been you know spending." A good amount and really getting back into the hobby you know and i've been uh scooping up uh a lot of the a lot of my favorite comics and i've just been getting them graded and and slabbed so i can you know oh man yeah (laughs) (laughs) okay and then the guy was like oh okay okay and and the guy the customer asked the guy do you guys grade comics or do you um do you slab them and the guy was like I think he said something like, no, we don't do that ourselves, but we can help you get started on that path if that's what you're interested in. You know, just being a helpful store owner. And then this guy was like, yeah, that's what I, yeah, that that would be great. I'm really looking for someone to help me do that because right now I I only really uh, care about the comics that I like, you know. And he made it sound like he was into like some special (laughs) stuff. I don't know. Yeah. Like when someone like says that, air auteur comics or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like when you hear someone say that, what do you? What comes to mind, Albert? What do you think? Really, really indie, highbrow sort of stuff, right? It's like <laughs> I'm really into premium, premium comics. You know, the kind of things that your average person doesn't know about. You know, just a little <laughs> bit of a, uh, a little bit of a secret amongst the real quote real fans <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's like i was i was on the edge of my seat man i was digging through comics but i was listening to this guy and i was like what's he gonna say is he gonna say he, he wants to get love and rockets number one slabbed or yeah, eight yeah, ball yeah. or something <laughs> have you heard of a little about? character of a small character called wolverine does anyone <laughs> know about this guy <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and then so this customer says yeah there are only a a few comics that i really like enough to to get slabbed so they're just you know my favorite comics and then i think the store owner was like or the store guy was like oh yeah uh, what are you into and the guy was like i really like venom and deadpool so it's mostly them (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah when you told me that when you gave that whole spiel about how he was getting back into the hobby and he was starting to buy things up and, um, you know, uh, slabbing things, I was just like, it just sounds like a revolving door. Like, it's him quickly getting into the hobby and what faster way to get out of the hobby, you know? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It just sounds like you're setting yourself up to burn out because it is not... I do not like recommend that that be the way that you re-enter the hobby of comics. That's just it. Just sounds like a terrible idea. <laughs> it sounds pretty pointless. Although, yeah. To be fair, if all he really likes are Venom and Deadpool comics, I suppose he's not really missing much if he just slabs them because he's not missing out on much of a reading experience. 
That's true. That's Generally true. speaking, with a few exceptions. I if, yeah. I wonder if he thinks he's really got some like treasures on his hands. If he thinks he's going to make some money off that. <laughs> <laughs> I should have like... joined the conversation and asked him. But once I heard him talking about slabbing, I think there was just a little alarm warning in my mind. Or my spider sense was just tingling, telling me this guy's not worth your time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah he just sounds like a fool who is about to be parted from his monies exactly exactly yeah. well that was a fun story thank you for sharing <laughs> that you know always good to be reminded why i hate other comics fans <laughs> <laughs> except for people that listen to our podcast of course Exactly, exactly. Because people who listen to our podcast are the educated ones. People who actually care about story. People of culture who appreciate art and the medium of comics. You people have tastes. Exactly. (laughs) Yes. So, speaking of which, do you mind telling the good people what our episode today is going to be on and about? So today, we are talking about a graphic novel called Shuna's Journey by Hayao Miyazaki. This is a book that is translated from Japanese into English by Alex Dudok DeWitt. It was originally published in one volume in Japan back in 1983, but published in English for the first time by First Second back in November of 2022. So it's by Hayao Miyazaki, of course, one of the most famous filmmakers in the world, one of the co-founders of Studio Ghibli. This book came out near the end of 2022, and it definitely got our attention. Of course, being us, we're slow on the uptake, so I think we were both just like holding out until we could find it on sale. Mm-hmm. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> I eventually ended up getting my copy for 60% off. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's it's a quality book and it's worth the money, but, you know, I ain't made of money. I ain't rolling in, you know, Joe Rogan podcast money or anything like that. <laughs> if I were, I could buy all my comics straight off the rack. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Maybe we need to start uh, producing content like Joe Rogan in order to get yeah. more listeners and therefore more money. We can start selling uh, supplements, you know, to, to our fans. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the supplements of the ball shrinking variety. <laughs> you'll have big muscles, but you'll also have teeny, teeny, tiny balls after you're done with it. <laughs> because that's what steroids do. <laughs> wait, wait. I mean, supplements. <laughs> right. <laughs> Even deer antler spray, does that do that too? Does that shrivel your testicles, Albert? Probably. I mean, I wouldn't, I I don't know what's in deer antler spray. I, it's not a thing that I would naturally think to inject into my, you know, veins or in my taint, <laughs> wherever you inject things so that people don't find the needle marks. But sure, <laughs> in between toes and uh, finger joints. <laughs> uh <laughs> Yeah, maybe we'll put that on our imaginary Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> Official between the gutters, deer antler spray. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. We can just start uh, developing our, our own brand. Just give it like an incredibly hostile or aggressive name because that's <laughs> how you know it's for men. Yeah. <laughs> it's for alphas. Do you want to be an alpha, Drew? <laughs> uh, oh, thanks. <laughs> All right. All right. Okay. So, so we're talking about Shuna's journey. It it uh it won an Eisner Award, uh, won the 2023 Eisner Award for best U.S. edition of international material from Asia. Mm-hmm. So that's something. Yeah. And it's yeah. like I was saying earlier, man. Hayao Miyazaki, very renowned director. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we're at that point in time where even if people don't know anything about anime, you can put his name out there and there's some some sense of recognition, right? So Yeah. Yeah. If even if uh, people don't know much about anime, if they care about movies, they at least have heard of Studio Ghibli. Yeah. And it's an opportune time for us to talk about this book, if only because uh a movie that he made just recently came out. The boy and the heron. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, not only did it work out for us to talk about it now because of um, you know the release of the book, but it it's you know he's he's kind of at the well maybe not the peak of his popularity, but you know he's back uh, in the public discourse. Yeah, exactly, exactly. We we see that this movie is out, so we thought it'd be a good opportunity to discuss this earlier work of his. Mm, did you end up watching yeah. The Boy in the Heron? I did. I did. I watched it maybe about a week ago, a little over a week ago. Uh, it was something that I'd probably have to watch again. I think there are, are a lot of rules that they establish in the movie that I'm not entirely familiar with i don't know if it's just a thing that would come more naturally to me if i was native japanese or something or Mm -hmm. if they just decided to leave certain explanations out so that you know they left it to us the viewers to kind of fill in those gaps but yeah there are things about it that uh i'm like i mean as as always the animation is good to look at but i I'd probably have to rewatch it again to see if I can catch the things that I didn't necessarily catch the first time around. Yeah, same here. I think I was talking to a few other people who watched it, and they pretty much said the same thing. I watched it, uh, I don't know, maybe a week or two before Christmas. And I think it was something I after leaving the theater, I was still thinking about it for a couple of days after, you know, trying to digest it and process it. I would say mm-hmm. maybe it's not something that necessarily immediately resonated with me on an emotional level, but certainly in terms of its craftsmanship and its animation, just the overall quality of it was incredible. Mm-hmm. I think, and I do think that there is enough in the story to warrant multiple viewings to help you kind of unlock some of the stuff that's within it like some of the more i guess some of the more abstract ideas that are buried in it It, it's it all you know just makes it a fascinating movie there's a lot of interesting themes that we see in some of his other works and 
just as a piece of art, I think it's great because it does make you think about it. You know, your your mind yeah. is in conversation with it, and that's not something I can really say about a lot of other movies. Yeah, yeah. I guess since you've opened it up, it's worth asking. I mean, not that it isn't abundantly clear already, but I'm curious as to what your exposure to Miyazaki was and, you know, your overall thoughts on him and his work. Mm. Okay. Here's my, here's my hot take, Albert. You ready for my hot take? <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Let me, let me sit down. Let me brace myself. I'm going to hold your on loins, to Albert. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm grabbing my loins and I'm girding them. I don't know what that means or what, how you do that to loins, but I will, you know, <laughs> tug and pull and strain until i think that they have been properly girded okay okay so my <laughs> my miyazaki hot take is that as far as studio ghibli movies go all of my absolute favorite ghibli movies are the ones that are directed by other directors mm-hmm. okay my loins have processed what you had to say and i think it's good that you told me to gird them because otherwise they would have exploded with surprise and shock. Ugh. We would we would have had to uh, put a pause on this episode so that I could change pants. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for for warning me. <laughs> You're welcome, man. I would I would hate to do that. The the less editing I have to do on the podcast, the better. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's fair. I think, you know, we've had this discussion in the past and the movies that you mentioned are pretty, I do think they're, they're good movies. So it's not like, here's the, here's the thing, Albert. It's not like I dislike Miyazaki, but Mm -hmm. when I think of Ghibli's output, my favorite, my absolute favorite Ghibli movies would be, well, one of my favorite movies in general is Isao Takahata's Only Yesterday. That's number one for Ghibli in my mind, for me personally. And then, you know, Grave of the Fireflies is is high up there. Whisper yeah, of the Heart, when Marnie yeah. was there. Like, none of those were directed by Miyazaki. But it's not like I think he's bad or that I don't like him or anything. It's just that my favorite Ghibli movies are those other ones. Right, right, right. And yeah, I, I have watched sure. most of his, most of Miyazaki's movies. Like, the only ones I haven't, I haven't really watched are um porco rosso for some reason i just haven't gotten around to that one and i also haven't seen uh before he went to ghibli he did a a lupon the third movie the castle of cogliostro or cagliostro i've never seen that one either yeah as someone who has watched porco rosso like i don't think you're not to not to put it down or anything because it's it's a fine movie it's fun in its own right for sure but in terms of emotional substance i do feel like the movies you mentioned were probably on the stronger end of that spectrum and i'm always constantly thinking of this one interview with miyazaki i saw like way like years ago where he talks about the movies that he worked on and what he liked and he talks about porco rosso and what he says is to, in, to sum it up in brief, he basically just says, I just really liked it because I wanted to do a movie about, you know, cool looking planes flying around. 
Yeah. <laughs> and that's what it's about, you know. It's it's which is fine, you know. I I don't begrudge anyone who who wants to do that, especially if they're good at what they do, right? So Yeah. And that tracks yeah. because Miyazaki's always had a fascination with flying in general. Like it comes yeah, up absolutely. in his movies all the time. I mean, you got Castle in the Sky. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, there's The Wind Rises, which is about the yeah. guy who designed the Mitsubishi Zero. <laughs> shoot even in the boy and the heron uh, it's a pretty minor thing but the protagonist's father works at a factory where he assembles plane parts yeah so yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's just something that always crops up in his movies it and his stories his mind and his work yeah 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 even in in like nausicaa right nausicaa has that glider thing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. do you mind me asking what your first uh i guess miyazaki movie was Oh shoot! I think it was probably Princess Mononoke. Mm. I'm pretty sure that was the first one I saw back in the '90s. It was right around the time when anime was starting to boom in America, but it hadn't like reached that, you know, the peak or anything yet. But it was like starting to become more mainstream. And funny thing about Princess Mononoke, I remember for the dub, they got Neil Gaiman to to write the script for the dub. Mm. And I'm pretty sure I borrowed that VHS from Blockbuster way back <laughs> okay. in the late 90s. Yeah, I don't remember. I don't think I watched it dubbed. I'm pretty sure I watched the sub even back then. But uh, that was my first miyazaki movie i saw and then i went back afterwards over the years and i've slowly tried to watch the rest of his output but i still haven't seen castle of cagliostro or porco rosso okay 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 what about you man what's your experience with miyazaki's work um so when i think back i went through a period where I had a friend who introduced me to anime, I guess, properly, if you could call it that. I I think up to that point, I had been peripherally aware of anime. And, you know, there were definitely things that I would watch here and there when whenever they were on TV, you know, pre YouTube, pre internet days. Mm -hmm. But I don't think I was ever so obsessed with it at least early on in my life where i i actively sought it out but i remember in high school uh, a buddy of mine we we would usually nerd out about science fiction we we were both avid fans of star trek so we had a lot of discussions about that and then when babylon 5 was out that was something that we talked about a lot and then he started sharing you know his love of uh manga with me so he was the one who introduced me to battle angel alita mm. uh his name was david so uh, not that that has really anything to do with anything but yeah he, hey, david, he introduced... david might be listening man shout out to david yeah. you changed albert's yeah, life exactly <laughs> so um yeah, he introduced me to that. He introduced me to, uh, funnily enough, he introduced me to a bunch of anime primarily through 
anime music videos amvs mm. so he, we would we would i would hang out at his house and he would put these on in his room and i remember watching you know just random anime music videos and being like what's that what's that right probably took so a couple that, hours to download those on his 56k <laughs> Well, fortunately, he already had them downloaded, so we didn't have to like wait for them to download. <laughs> but yeah, that's how I learned about like Trigun and Outlaw Star and some other random stuff. Cowboy Bebop, probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I remember one time we were at his house. We didn't have anything to do. And he was like, here, check this out. And he put on Laputa. Uh, oh, okay. Castle in the Sky. sky. Yeah, so that was my first exposure to it, and that like hit really hard because that was it was one of those experiences where after I watched the movie, I was just like, "Is this what anime is like? Like, is there more like it?" And oh, <laughs> yeah, and I know you uh, probably didn't feel quite as strongly about it, but I did think that the imagery in that movie was just so evocative for me. Just watching this this land that they inhabited this uh you know this just absolutely gorgeous agrarian society that they lived in and then you know following the story of these two kids that were you know kind of sort of in love but not really like you know that sort of really pure yeah innocent childish kind of love right where maybe they don't know for sure that that's what it is but they definitely like like each other a whole lot and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, all those elements just came together to make it just feel like such a moving heart, heartstring tugging sort of experience that I was I was just super into that movie for a while. So for the longest time before it came out on Blu-ray or DVD, that was a movie that I was constantly just searching for, you know, and then from that, I would move on. That is to... one of my favorite Miyazaki movies. I do like that one quite a bit, too. Yeah, yeah. From that, we moved. I, I would eventually move on to, you know, uh, um, Princess Mononoke because that was around the time period where maybe it, it wasn't when it came out, but I remember when it did come out at the time. It was huge. It was, yeah, it was huge. It was there was a lot of hoopla around it because people were saying like, "Oh, this was the number one movie in Japan," you know, mm-hmm. for. Like it beat out Star Wars or something like that, right? Maybe that's very yeah. specific qualifying language to use, but <laughs> oh, it was it was a big deal. Yeah. And then, yeah, and so after that, I I would follow uh, his career, and um, I think one of my absolute favorites, aside from uh, Laputa, is Spirited Away. I do have a lot of affection mm. for that movie. I remember when that came out, I bought it on DVD, and it was something that I watched quite a bit like maybe once every couple of months actually <laughs> and that's good man you got your money's value yeah. out of it yeah, yeah totally and the thing about the dvd that i always like i was just so transfixed by all of the elements of what came with the dvd so i remember i would watch the interviews and i would watch the making of stuff the featurettes mm. and there were even times again this is pre-youtube mind you so there were even times that i remember where i when it was late at night and i just felt like i wanted something peaceful on i would put the spirited away dvd in and go to the menu screen and i would just allow the menu screen to play without like touching anything and 
the the menu screen music was just yeah it was just so peaceful uh, that i could like fall asleep to it <laughs> incredible <laughs> that's a yeah, great yeah, memory yeah did yeah. you ever upgrade your dvd to a blu-ray i didn't i still just have the dvd and part of me might be afraid like i haven't checked but if i get the blu-ray i don't know if they've removed all the featurettes and all the videos and stuff so even though you just um, gotta keep both yeah that's that's a good point even though i've uh recent in recent years been in the act of getting rid of a lot of my old dvds i do know that that dvd in particular and maybe the other Miyazaki DVDs are, aren't ones that I'm going to get rid of anytime soon because yeah, you, I do you can't get rid of want that one. those things. Yeah, for yeah, sure. For sure. You slept with it, man. You can't get rid of it. That'd be cruel. <laughs> Who wouldn't want a DVD that I've had pressed up against my body, soaking <laughs> up all of my, my essence and my sweat? <laughs> my... <laughs> that is not what I meant, but if you did that too, um, okay. <laughs> it's a collector's item. <laughs> you should get that CGC'd. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so I do have appreciation for Miyazaki. Uh, that, that isn't to say that I don't. Like, I guess I, I have the more conventional reverse uh, opinion that you do, which is, you know, I do like those other movies too. Like, Grave of the Fireflies is fantastic. And, um, uh, I don't think I ever watched uh, Mar Marley and Me, Mar Marnie and Me. To, uh, what was it called? When, uh, when Marnie was there. Oh, when Marnie was there. Yeah, I don't think I ever watched that one. But I did watch. Uh, uh, oh yeah, another early uh, Studio Studio Ghibli movie that my friend introduced me to was Whispers of the Heart. So that was another one that I watched like when I was just hanging out with him, and that oh, always yeah. left a pretty deep impact on me. Yeah, I remember uh, I borrowed your copy of that DVD, Whisper of the Heart, and yeah, I fell in love with that movie. That was a great movie. Yeah, it's a great movie. Yeah, yeah, I I have pos only positive things to say about Miyazaki. I got no real issues with the dude. And what would you so say they, is so? Would you say that Spirited Away or Castle in the Sky is your favorite of his? I think. I would probably say let's have overall, your Miyazaki power ranking, dude. Your power ranking of all the Miyazaki movies you've seen. I think as an adult, Spirited Away was probably more uh influential to me and more thought provoking, if only because this to me it wasn't a conventional adventure story, right? Where it's one of the greatest isekais of all time. Do you think? Do you consider it an isekai? <laughs> yeah, she went to another world, dude. She didn't die though. You don't and have I don't to even die. know. You I don't have to know die for it to be an isekai. Okay. You just have to visit okay. another world. I don't even know if she really visited another world though, because uh, I guess so. I mean, the world of the spirits. Yeah, she was spirited yeah. away. But anyways, uh, I think Castle in the Sky, uh, Laputa, is probably more of a linear sort of story where, you know, you might compare it to something like E.T. or something where these kids go on an adventure and they mm -hmm. have the adventure of a lifetime and 
it's going to be a memory that sticks with them forever, which is pretty great, you know, for for a kid's story. But I do think that maybe the coming of age elements of spirited spirited away are more pronounced. So yeah, it's the sort of I felt like spirited where... away has more of the abstract qualities and themes, mm-hmm. whereas Castle in the Sky felt like it was more straightforward, like you were saying. Yeah, it's more of an adventure story, whereas yeah. Spirited Away probably requires a little more thought on the viewer's end to kind of contemplate what's happening. Mm-hmm. But, okay, let me let me bust out a little anecdote. And uh, this, it, it reminds me of a time where me, you, and a couple of your friends went to go watch Spirited Away in theaters. Yep, I remember that. Yeah, I, I forget. Was that your first viewing of it, or had you seen it before prior to that? I had seen it I before. Think that was your first... Okay. Or no, wait. No, no, I did see it before, but it was like, prob. It had probably been like twenty years because that that movie came out in like two thousand one, and I I clearly remember watching it when I was in college, not in theaters, mm-hmm. but I just remember, like one of the. It might have been like the the university anime club or somebody had a screening for it in one of the auditoriums. I remember watching it there, but mm-hmm. maybe I was just really tired or something. So not much of it stuck with me in my memory other than yeah. Yeah. some of the images of the of the spirits. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, perhaps you just needed to... I needed to watch it as an adult. With exactly. Eyes. Yeah. <laughs> Even though, in terms of age, you were probably an adult <laughs> at the time. Uh, yeah, I was probably I was probably like twenty or twenty one or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But after we finished watching the movie, one of your friends was like, was essentially saying one of your friends essentially said that it was fine, but nothing happened. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And. We had this conversation, um, like right in the, uh, I guess the, the theater the lobby, lobby. The theater, the theater lobby, yeah. exactly. And I was, I, I remember saying to him something to the effect of, "I think a lot actually happened. You know, it's just that her growth, the story of her growth, wasn't predicated on her fighting a demon or slaying a monster. Like what you were watching." The the circumstances or the actions that where you were watching her grow involved her learning how to work in a bathhouse, learning how to ask for a job, learning how to like take responsibility for, um, you know, her work, uh, mm-hmm. things like that, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah, so much of the movie wasn't really about there were demons and ghosts and spirits in there, but it wasn't really about her being a demon slayer or anything. Yeah. It was about her <laughs> learning to fend for herself and get a job and work in this bathhouse and to be able to take care of herself and eventually to find the confidence to like save her friends. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I was, I was hoping that that was something that would get to him and give him a different perspective on what he had just watched. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that is, a relatively common takeaway because I've just from the time I've spent in kind of your typical mainstream anime online fan spaces, a lot of people, 
<laughs> I think there are a lot of people who maybe they're younger than us. Maybe they don't necessarily hold Ghibli with the same reverence that we do. Mm-hmm. Heck, I'd say a lot of modern anime fans, they don't really view movies in high regard, if if that makes sense. Like they don't really they're not really cinephiles or whatever you'd want to call it. Like for them, it's it's just about the most popular shonen TV series out there. So when they see something like Spirited Away, they're kind of perplexed as to why people think it's good. Because I, I've definitely seen people say, nothing really happened in it. Mm-hmm. And it just makes me scratch my head because it makes me wonder if they know how to watch a movie. Yeah. I mean, for all of the talk of the internet age and how it's shortened our attention span and you know our essentially evaporated our ability to sit still and process these moments as as something worth observing as something with inherent meaning um yeah that that's that's one of those situations that makes me consider whether <laughs> It makes me ponder about younger people and whether that <laughs> level of attention is just something that's lost to us now, you know? Yeah. And I think one of the things that people tend to get hung up on hung up about way too much is forward plot momentum. Like they're mm-hmm. they constantly need their stories, their anime or their shows or whatever it is that they're watching. They need it to have forward plot momentum in the sense of showing the characters in action, doing something, accomplishing a goal, whether that's yeah. beating a bad guy or obtaining the thing that they've been striving to attain for however long, and then moving on to the next thing that they have to beat up or the next thing that they have to find. It's just a never-ending series of fetch quests or uh, mm-hmm. beating up bosses and, and stuff like that, where the journey itself means very little to them compared to the outcome of yeah where they're going or of their journey you know like the outcome of they just want to skip to the end and and they're just looking for something that they can write in a neat wikipedia summary you know like bullet points of or paragraphs of stuff that they can write oh this happened and then that happened and then the hero did this and then this happened and then it was over you know that's what people are looking for and yeah i just can't I can't read stories like that. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a little disappointing. I I hope that it's not a generational thing. I hope it's not a thing where you know audiences moving forward are only going to be able to tell movies or stories in the form of like TikToks or whatever. Oh <laughs> man, that would Killing be me. annoying. <laughs> yeah. Know? That would be. Uh, it's just, it's funny though, because I, I remember a few years ago, the, the the whole big thing was, you know, telling people to go outside and touch grass and, you know, get <laughs> off the internet. And it just feels like telling someone that is a roundabout way of saying, hey, sometimes it's okay to just observe and appreciate life without, uh, without constantly needing to be stimulated right 
Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, but you know, it just feels like now, even though theoretically they have the right idea, uh, you know, seeing these stories and not being able to comprehend the entire purpose of it because, you know, it's not immediately giving you the kind of emotional or not even emotional just the kind of stimulus that you want from your story Mm -hmm. um yeah it just feels like there's something wrong there (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah yeah okay so you got spirited away and castle in the sky at the top yeah uh i think after that i I did watch Grave of the Fire. So I think some a lot of these movies are really just established in my memory based on just the visceral emotional reactions that I had to them from when I saw them way back. Mm-hmm. As it, it just, you know, kind of happened at a at a pretty uh at a time in my life where I was just really uh in not what's the word, not influential or uh where I was invaluable malleable i guess yeah so like grave of the fireflies would probably be up there at that's a number... takahata movie oh yeah that's true that, okay um i'm trying to think what else so i have uh castle uh, so i have a uh, spirited away castle in the sky um i'd probably say whispers of the heart is pr- pretty up there for me that's not Miyazaki either, remember? That's not Miyazaki either. Okay. Uh Nausicaa. Okay. I'll, okay, I'll, okay. I'll probably go with Nausicaa. Uh no 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 no. Okay. I'll put Kiki's delivery service, Totoro, Nausicaa. Uh no no no. Okay. <laughs> okay. Ugh, there's I'm I'm juggling so much here. Okay, I will go. Uh uh Spirited Away, Castle in the Sky, Princess Mononoke. Then I'll go Kiki's Delivery Surface, My Neighbor Totoro. Um, oh, no, 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 I'm looking at the list here. I haven't seen Castle of Cagliostro. I'd probably put... Uh, the Wind Rises? We, okay okay yeah wind rises um boy in the heron uh ponyo and then probably porco Rosso. oh uh, uh ponyo uh howl's moving castle and then probably porco Rosso. no porco Rosso and then howl's moving castle okay okay so howl's at the bottom yeah i think that's my least favorite of his films <laughs> Because yeah. I just remember watching that in theaters, and when we get to the ending, there there was really a moment where I was just like, "When did that happen?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe we got to watch it again. Maybe, maybe. I know that a lot of people do like it. I do think the optics of a giant moving castle is cool on paper, and heck, I do think it's just cool. Period. Seeing that, I just, I think I just take issue with some of the plot plotting <laughs> yeah funny thing is i feel yeah. like the people who who don't really like spirited away tend to like Howl's moving castle hmm. yeah I wonder why. 
at least from some of the again online spaces where I've lurked, I've I've heard more people say positive things about Howl's than the other Miyazaki movies, and Howl's is definitely my least favorite one of his as well. Oh, that, maybe that I does something. Know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we are we're uh, Eskimo brothers in that sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yup. We we share our hatred of the general masses of anime fans. <laughs> now now I'm kind of curious to to see what everybody else has to say about it. But that's a subject for a different day and a different time. And a different podcast, probably. And a different podcast, exactly. <laughs> Before the record, my my favorite, my personal favorite Miyazaki film is Kiki's Delivery Service. I love that one. It's a very good one. I I have quite the appreciation for that as well. And I feel like I need to rewatch The Wind Rises because I think the first time I saw it, it was again, it was one of those things where I felt like some of the ideas that he was that he was communicating came off in a kind of abstract or obtuse way where I would get more out of it if I rewatched it. So I feel like I need to do that in order to properly judge it in my mind. Yeah. I I did end up buying the Wind Rises Blu-ray shortly after it premiered. Or not, well, you know, relatively shortly after it premiered. And the thing about that movie was, and this is just, you know, Purely, purely theoretical on my part, but perhaps because it is a movie that is based somewhat in reality, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's it's a semi-autobiographical story about this this uh, plane designer. So maybe, at least to me, maybe it doesn't seem quite as abstract as some of his other films. Or, or it had quite some interesting as... fantasy sequences too, like the dreams that the dude was having, from what I remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the imagery was incredible. I think I need to rewatch it to kind of analyze its meaning. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you ever want to check it out, I have the Blu-ray. Yeah. Yo, you know what else is cool about The Wind Rises though is that Hideaki Anno did the voice of the main character. Oh, nice. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> it's, it's, so it's really that, it, it definitely has that middle-aged man energy. You got to appreciate that. <laughs> I think that's sweet. what I, I did vibe with with that movie. It's just kind of like this guy having, I don't know if you'd call it a midlife crisis or something. I, I don't even know how old the guy was supposed to be, but he felt like an older guy. Yeah. yeah. Character. And yeah, just having that love for for flying. It's almost like, you see Miyazaki's joy in some of the things that he's obsessed with and he puts it on film and then he gets like one of his protégés who's not even really known as a voice actor but as yeah. another anime director to play the main character it it's a fascinating decision yeah i do i think the thing that speaks to me about that particular film about the wind rises is that I think at the time it was <laughs> it was supposed to be like Miyazaki's last film. Mm-hmm. I could be mm-hmm. remembering it wrong. No, you're correct. Just, okay, because that would have been a beautiful like, swan song too, if that yeah, had yeah, been yeah. his last film. Exactly. Yeah. But Miyazaki keeps kind of pulling it back. <laughs> I guess he just keeps wanting to do stuff where he doesn't want to go into retirement, which is fine, whatever, right? But yeah. the thing about the uh, the movie is 
you're right as as a swan song it would have been perfect because it's about a man who has this pursuit of the dream of creation of seeing something a vision in of his get brought into life brought into reality and Mm -hmm. you know so even outside of um miyazaki's love of planes i i think that for him as a creator especially if that had been his last movie at the end of his career to do a story about a man who spent his life working so hard to see his dream realized and then to live with that there's there's a beauty to that yeah so it would have been very fitting if that had been his final movie Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah and apparently so, he still hasn't retired even after the boy and the heron. Yeah, it was supposed to be his last one, and then he's—I think he quickly retracted it after that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's getting pretty up there in years, though. So I'm not. Yeah, I'm not too sure how many more movies he'll have left, but hopefully, we'll still get some more stuff from him. Yeah. Because uh, I think the movie debuted over here as his highest-grossing box office. You know, oh. so it, it's it's a personal best for him, right? That's good. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's I, I could be remembering well. it wrong. I'd have to double check, but I'm pretty sure that's what they were saying when it came out. It was like his highest, uh, I guess, international for him would be domestic for us, or. Okay. His highest American box office opening. That's pretty good, man. It's good to hear. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you know. I I I applaud him for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You wanna go into Shuna Shuna's journey a little bit? I can give uh, a brief synopsis, the synopsis that the book provides. Yeah, let's have a dramatic reading of the synopsis. Oh man, you put me on the spot. I gotta make it dramatic. <laughs> okay. <laughs> dun dun dun! Shuna, the prince of a poor land, watches in despair as his people work themselves to death, harvesting the grain, uh, harvesting the little grain that grows there. And so, when a traveler presents him with a sample of seeds from a mysterious western land, he sets out to find the source of the golden grain, dreaming of a better life for his subjects. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> it is not long before he meets a proud girl named Thea. After freeing her from captivity, he is pursued by his enemies, and while Thea escapes north, Shuna continues towards the west, finally reaching the land of the god folk. Will Shuna ever see Thea again? And will he make it back home from his quest from for the golden grain? Will he? <laughs> Okay. Was that dramatic? <laughs> that was pretty dramatic. I might even say that was melodramatic. <laughs> but it was entertaining. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty tight and succinct uh synopsis of the story. Um I I don't we're not quite in that area we're gonna we're we're, i'm assuming where we're gonna fully discuss it with spoilers or anything but i will say that uh yeah it accurately sums up everything that goes on in the story it's Mm -hmm. i don't think i think this is a a work that's true to um 
Hayao Miyazaki's tendencies to not really make the story so much about, like we said earlier, moving the plot forward because the plot's pretty simple, as we discussed. Mm-hmm. But it's really about the observation of the passage of time and the world around the main character. Um, yeah, and the actual journey. And the actual journey, exactly, exactly. So I guess we'll just jump into uh, thoughts. Like, what? how'd you feel about what you read? I liked it a lot. I really enjoyed it, man. It's a different. It's different from what I expected it to be. I, I think I thought it would be more like a uh, traditional manga, but it's actually more of an illustrated storybook than a traditional comic. You know, like there's a lot of splash pages, a lot of pages that just have a couple of big panels. There are very few actual word balloons. Usually, the text is just kind of descriptive prose that accompanies the the pictures and that's what gives it that sense of feeling more like an illustrated book kind of like mm-hmm. i guess kind of like a picture book but for older readers you know and even in the back essay at the end of the book the note from the translator he mentions that it's closer to what the japanese would call an emonogatari or an illustrated story so, yeah, it's not really like a comic in the sense where we see a lot of word balloons and stuff, although there are some in in the book. Uh, I think that's what jumped out at me the most. It, it stood out for being more, I guess, narrative-driven. And, yeah, I just thought that the writing was really well done, and I was able to get swept up and engaged in the story the artwork is magnificent it's miyazaki doing these watercolor illustrations and everybody just looks gorgeous man like the artwork is gorgeous even if the people themselves don't actually you know look attractive in that traditional sense there's like a lot of you know grungy looking old dudes and stuff like that yeah but the the world building is incredible the the backgrounds are vibrant and the landscapes are appealing. It's yeah, it's just impressive visually. Yeah, yeah. I would have to second your your assessment of the book. It's something that I did enjoy quite a bit. I it's just beautiful to look at and I think the thing that really jumped out at me was the pacing of it where mm-hmm. I feel like we've definitely read our fair share of fantasy adventure stories. And whenever you do one of these epic journeys, a personal uh, quibble of mine is I never get the sense that they go on a journey because it always feels like someone leaves from point A and then they kind of just gloss over the actual journeying part and you just end up at point B. And then there's a lot of exposition that they fill, use to fill in uh, the world-building elements. So, you know, it feels like the exposition is the thing that kind of uh, populates the world. Uh, mm-hmm. but, but with this book, so, much, so many pages and time is spent on going from place to place. And I appreciate that 
I appreciate how minimalist it is about everything that it doesn't really have to inundate you with a lot of, like I said, exposition where they give you just enough and you can, you can from context fill in everything else that you need to know. Uh, and they don't necessarily feel the need to explain everything to you. It's, it really is a book that allows you to appreciate the quieter moments mm-hmm. of of the journeying aspect of travel. So, yeah, I, I I had a fondness for this book as well. Yeah, it's really got that storybook kind of quality. And I also like that it's it's well in the afterward uh, they include uh, Miyazaki's original afterward I guess from 1983 and he mentions how the story is based on a Tibetan folktale called the Prince Who Turned Into a Dog mm. and I'll just read his summary of it he says. In the tale, the prince of a certain country is concerned that his people live in poverty with no cereals to grow. At the end of a journey full of hardship, he steals grain from the serpent king and, as a result, is magically turned into a dog. He is saved by the the love of a young woman and eventually brings the cereal back to his country. So it's a pretty simple uh, recounting of that Tibetan folktale. And you can see how that formed the skeleton for Shuna's journey as well. It's like very, uh, I don't want to say simplistic, but straightforward tale that has these, it's, it's almost like a fable or, or something that you would read in, in, in like a Grimm's stories or something like that, where the story of Shuna's journey is about this prince this young prince boy's journey to try and obtain special grain to save his kind of famished uh community and along the way he encounters a girl and he encounters and he ends up stealing the grain from the gods who guard it but they they instead of turning him into a dog they end up causing his mind to regress or like he like he he just gets mentally messed up to the point where he doesn't remember how to talk or anything about uh who he is and stuff and it's not until Thea kind of nurtures him back to good health that he remembers and he's able to go back to uh head back to where he came from although it's interesting yeah. how the the ending is where it's like well I guess I'm we're talking about I'm spoiling it now, so if you haven't if anyone out there right. listening hasn't read it, uh you should probably go do that. Let but, this be the point. <laughs> yeah. 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 I don't necessarily think that this story is gonna be yeah. less enjoyable if it's spoiled, but Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's not the kind of story that's known. predicated on like a shock or a twist ending or like the surprise of of not knowing the 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 way that the plot works out, you know. So yeah, um, yeah. Don't don't feel 
gypped if you're listening to it and you know, our our spoilers come up on you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because the, the way the story ends is Funa, Thea, Thea's sister, and Funa's Yakul, his that kind of deer thing that, that he rides, uh, they're just kind of walking off into the grassland, and then there's a caption that says, Funa's journey is not yet over. The road to the valley is long, and his troubles are far from finished. But that's a story for another time. The end. <laughs> you know, it's got that kind of fable quality to it where you can just use your imagination to imagine what comes next and it's not necessarily super germane to the point of the story to see him bring back the grain to his community and lead them into a new era of health and prosperity you know it yeah it's a story that's really about his actual journey not necessarily about him completing the quest and becoming the savior to his people yeah yeah i i did have one odd thought i don't know if you felt the same way but i'm gonna put it out there mm-hmm. and it's it's kind of just a random thought okay while i was looking at this book and you know observing the art you can't help but notice the style in which things are drawn and maybe it's this says more about my attention to detail but or or lack thereof in this case but looking at the art and the style in which Miyazaki draws people and their style of clothing mm-hmm. it makes sense that for the amount of work that he draws that there would be ticks and similarities in everything that he draws uh that they would be there would be yeah similarities right and as i was watching reading shuna's journey i couldn't help but think about nausicaa valley of the wind yeah and i imagine these were two works that came out decently close in time to one another Mm -hmm. because i feel like i don't remember exactly when nausicaa came out but it was definitely around that maybe early 80s late 70s period yeah well shuna came out in 1983 and the nausicaa manga which preceded the movie the manga began in 82 okay it ended in 94 so So, uh therefore shuna came out while he was still working on nausicaa okay the manga Right, right. Yeah. And you have a good chunk of the manga, right? Like, I know you don't have all of it, but it's something mm. that I assume that you've at least flipped through since you own it. Yeah, I found a bunch of them once at the San Jose Toy and Comic Craft Show or whatever it's called. Super Toy Collectible Show. You know, I've, I think that's what it's called. But uh, I remember... I found a pretty substantial chunk of them for like 10 cents a pop or something. <laughs> I was like, yeah. dude, I got to grab these. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But what I was going to say is you can't help but notice how similar in style uh, art style they are. And it just kind of makes my mind wander. <laughs> and there was a part of me that, you know, naturally goes to this place that thinks, I wonder if there there's like some sort of, shared cinematic universe out there between all of the Ghibli stuff. <laughs> like that's that's such a fanboy 
thing to do when you're into any sort of fandom is to try to pick out details so that you can justify the fan theory that Nausicaa actually is the future of Shuna and <laughs> they are the distant future of Laputa. <laughs> <laughs> and they are in an alternate dimension that runs parallel to Kiki's and Toto. <laughs> do you want to see that cinematic universe Drew? <laughs> i do not i wouldn't either <laughs> <laughs> but uh, i agree that there are a lot of similarities between the works especially shuna the character and and nausicaa like with that with different clothes they're almost like the same character or at least that's what they look yeah. like to me. Yeah. It's just Even the, their the clothes are different. Look- yeah, the worlds are similar. They're both these kind of... Uh, I guess the worlds aren't... Technic- the world of Shuna isn't technically a dying world, but there are definitely parts of it that are desolate, and the the community that Shuna is from is a desolate, dying community. Mm-hmm. The other yeah. The other thing that jumps out in terms of visual similarities is the yaku that yeah Shuna rides because that it looks like the same thing the same animal from princess mononoke exactly, exactly and i think i believe the animal in princess mononoke is also called a yaku yeah see we have a shared cinematic universe drew <laughs> <laughs> That sounds I feel like the only thing missing are those little dust mites. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we've discussed that a little bit. We we've discussed our you know thoughts on the book. We've discussed uh, you know some of the aesthetics of it. I'm kind of curious about things like the themes of it because I think on the surface when you view the book, again very much like Spirited Away, there's uh, I think there's a potential to overlook these things because you know i hate to say it but people who read it with without a close eye could probably just say that it's not about anything they just went from this place to this place it's like watching someone take the bus what what was the (laughs) point of that (laughs) you know yeah i'm sure there's somebody out there who could read this and be like he didn't even go back to his town and bring back the grain. What what's up with that? Yeah. What was the point of his journey if he didn't get to, you know, go back to his village, marry? I'm assuming the the thought is he's gonna marry this young girl that he saved, mm-hmm. and uh, that he's gonna, you know, be the hero that they all uh, uh, put on their shoulders and parade around town. Mm-hmm. Like, why? What for? <laughs> so tell me what what kind of themes or ideas jumped out to you were there any themes or ideas that jumped out at you yeah and i think we can talk about them individually a little slowly um as the conversation moves on but first i want to just list list them because they they did jump out at me because they're things that I've also seen in Miyazaki's other works in his films. 
you you do notice that there are quite a few recurring pet themes throughout his entire body of work and it goes beyond like the visual similarities of his artwork but you see stuff like environmentalism and nature and appreciating the natural world like that's in i think pretty much all of his movies mm-hmm. and the natural world is a big part of Shuna's journey as well. In fact, when he makes it to civilization, like even though the the city that he arrives in is seemingly pretty prosperous and they're modern people and it's a bustling kind of metropolis, it's all based on slavery. <laughs> yeah. And like trading yeah. slaves to the gods in exchange for for uh the food that they they want or need yeah it's the only resource that they have left to mm-hmm. trade right mm-hmm. because they're incapable of growing food because presumably the uh lack of care that they have shown the lack of respect that they have shown towards the land has caused it to go barren mm-hmm. or at least that was my interpretation of it yeah and here's a couple other things that I tend to see in Miyazaki's movies in general, but he also has a lot of themes of peace or even straight up anti-war. A lot of themes about family. Uh, we mentioned his obsession with flying earlier. That's something that we see in his a lot of his works. Not ne- maybe not necessarily Shuna's journey, uh, but one thing that we do see in Shuna's journey as well as most of his others his other movies is that it uses a youthful protagonist. A lot of his movies are about journeys in general, and uh, they they might not necessarily be journeys over distances, but they could be emotional journeys. And a lot of them tend to be coming of age stories featuring youthful protagonists. And there's also a lot of fantasy elements throughout his works. And I feel like maybe part of that is because he wants to foster a youthful sense of wonder, even in the most hardened adult viewer or reader of his work. There's just a commitment to including these fantasy elements in, I think, almost everything he does. Yeah, yeah. I, um, you know... To go to one of your earlier thoughts uh, where you talked about his environmentalism and, you know, his his commentary on nature. I remember I watched a video on YouTube from Wisecrack. It's, it's a channel that I follow where they kind of break down the philosoph- philosophical uh, interpretations of various works of art or, or works of entertainment and mm-hmm. they did a video about Miyazaki and one of the things that they proposed was and, and you know I, I have no idea how accurate this is I, I don't know Miyazaki's personal life or his personal beliefs uh, or even his background well enough that I could say this with any certainty but one of the things that the channel proposed was this idea that uh, in Japan, Shintoism is a pretty dominant religion 
for for the country and even if it's still not necessarily the case now it's the roots of shintoism still tends to permeate a lot of the uh subconscious mind of uh people within the, the japanese people right and mm-hmm. what they were saying was that one of the ideas behind shintoism is the idea that it seeks to cultivate and ensure a harmonious relationship between humans and kami and thus with the natural world so, um you know i don't you know kami just being kind of a stand in for the spirits that inhabit all like natural living things i guess um but yeah i just thought it was interesting um again i don't know if he is in fact someone who follows the teachings of shinto but i also wouldn't be surprised if there wasn't some of that in his upbringing to the point where you know if you tried to draw a line between that and um between his environmentalism and his views on nature and shintoism it wouldn't be something that surprises me that mm-hmm. you know that's in part where he gets those views from and and we see so much of that in his movies because the book like like his movies spends tends to spend a lot of time there there are these long shots or long or, or pages that are dedicated to just the world around the main characters you know yeah like i think of something like nausicaa valley of the wind there are these scenes where nausicaa goes into so in nausicaa valley of the wind the world is overgrown with these toxic plant fungus yeah this this toxic plant fungus entity right so humanity can only live within very sanitized uh limited areas that are not exposed to these wild toxic plants and at one point in the movie nausicaa goes into this just wild growth and it's just absolutely beautiful to watch her in there as she's exploring and you'll have these long periods of time where no one really says anything and it's just you watching and observing all of the various plant and animal life that exist within this uh habitat this ecosystem so yeah 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 like i think you know there's there's so much to appreciate from miyazaki but i I think his love of nature and environmentalism and uh the beauty of it all is the sort of thing that really emanates from the art that he produces to the point where I feel a sense of wonder and appreciation for these things you know definitely yeah even when you just flip open the book and go to the first page it's it starts with this double page splash of shuna's town or community in the bottom of the valley Alex. yeah and it's yeah it's just an amazing drawing with incredible coloring i think it's mm. watercolors and it's just it's just beautiful 
Yeah. Yeah. Like the the whole book is just filled with um you know different landscapes and different types of locations that have enough detail to inspire that sense of wonder, really trigger your imagination and take you to that place in your mind. Yeah, yeah. And another like element of his work that we tend to see a lot you know just just to really drive home the point or the yeah the point of man's i guess lack of agency when it comes to the natural world around them i, I think that's what i'm trying to say but when you go and you look at shuna's world when shuna is just traversing from place to place there are so many signs of man that are present you see all these statues and ruins and relics but it's just this constant reminder that as much as we see as as much as humans have achieved in the end it all falls to ruin because you know they perhaps they were they were too proud or there was too much hubris there that did not allow them to seek a harmonious relationship with nature one that ultimately ended in their demise mm-hmm. so yeah i i think it's it's definitely a recurring theme that you see in in quite a few of his works because again nausicaa sort of has the same sort of world where um you know the world of man they they used to have create these giant war machines and that is their legacy essentially because there's nothing left um of their world and they in the, in the movie you know uh, spoilers but they try to res- resurrect these war machines to try to take on um the vast wild growth that is slowly consuming their planet because that's the only answer that they have. Uh, Princess Mononoke is very much the same thing. Maybe it's not quite as dystopian as Shuna or Nausicaa and the Valley of the Wind, but there's definitely this sense, especially by the time you get, you know, spoilers for Mononoke, but by the time you get to the <laughs> end of Princess Mononoke, it it becomes an all-out war between, you know, the tools of man, their their firepower, their guns, their weapons, their explosives, and the spirits that inhabit the the forest. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, time and time again, we definitely see this back and forth between man and nature, and just their inability to live. I guess their inability to recognize their place within the entire system, right? Because it's that idea yeah. of how much hubris do you have to have to not realize that you are as much of an animal as these other beings and that <laughs> if you if your entire attitude is to like subjugate these whole thing right. like this uh, everything then eventually it will come back and just destroy you, you know? Like nature is so much bigger and more you know powerful than we are as individuals but there we go yeah 
Yeah, those are all good points. It's it's interesting to see him to see Miyazaki play with those ideas in Shuna's Journey because he made it around the same time that he was making Nausicaa. So I don't. Yeah, I, I feel like I would want to read Nausicaa. I've never actually read the manga. I've only watched the movie, but I, I'd really want to check out the manga at some point just to compare and see if there are any, you know, other common ideas or concepts that that are in both comics. Just because that's the kind of thing that fascinates me. The other thing I was gonna think or the other thing that I thought of as you were describing like the old men or the older generation in Nazca and and how like they just kind of stick to what they know which is bringing back these old war machines to to fight against you know to rage against the dying of the light there's something not exactly like that in Shuna's but I did notice how in the beginning of the story when Shuna is still in his town he finds that traveler uh, who collapses in near their town and uh, they try to nurse him back to health, but they really like, he he's just too far gone. And before he dies, he tells Shuna the legend about the, about the, the seeds, the golden seeds or golden grain. And then Shuna like takes that story to heart. Uh, even after this traveler has passed away and he just desires inside to inside his heart to go out there to travel forth and really see if that's true or i guess at some point he he believes it to be true and he just wants to get that golden grain for himself but then there's a a couple panels where shuna goes to his village elders and all these old men are gathered around and they're just saying you might be poor, but such is our fate, and it is right that we be buried here in this earth. When really Shuna wants to go and leave the village so he can try and obtain something that could potentially save them and change their fortunes and their outlook. But these men are just so stuck in the status quo that they're okay living the way that they're living. It's yeah. interesting to to think of that it's just the stubbornness of mankind right mm-hmm. and you know not to not to, to to make it a thing but it's it's hard not to comment on it I, like i'd say even in the modern world today we see how people are and just how tough change really is you know and the more the more change is kind of recommended the more there's a reaction to it to double down on what you already know works Mm -hmm. (laughs) or what you're comfortable with and yeah yeah right there's it just really feels like even if there was a solution that could theoretically require just some buy-in even the minimalist amount of buy-in from a person but could result in a substantially increased, not even substantially, just just an increased standard of living for everyone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can almost guarantee that there's going to be a large group 
a large <laughs> contingent of individuals who will find a way to, uh, you know, make it a thing that they can rally against. Yeah. People are funny, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> and if by funny, you mean terrible? Yes. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> that is exactly what I meant. <laughs> oh, goodness. On some level, though, the idea of old men being ingrained in their ways, that is something that I'm constantly checking myself for, examining myself as I get older. You know, especially when it comes to the comics I consume, you know, like mm. I feel like I'm also, I'm already at that point where I'm more comfortable and more interested in just reading either reading comics that I've already read or reading comics from creators that I already like and that are familiar to me as opposed to trying new stuff and seeing what younger people enjoy. And right. sometimes I do give myself, uh, or I do make myself give uh, like newer creators a chance, and they don't necessarily connect with me, or I'm not as grabbed by their work as I am by some of my old favorites, and it just reminds me how old I am. Yeah, I feel like uh, that is definitely something I've noticed about you, and. We've had conversations where I think a lot of the time we tend to fall back on the things that are comfortable to us. And especially doing a podcast now in 2023. 2024. I mean, you're right, 2024. I'm sorry. You're still living in the past, Albert. I'm an old man. Everything scares me. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, doing a podcast in 2024, it's 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 a funny tightrope to walk because I don't ever want being relevant to mean that I'm only going to chase like what's hot or what's hyped at the moment. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think because of your introspection there's also definitely a part of me that has been forced to look at myself in the mirror and kind of question what it is that i'm reading and uh what can i bring to this podcast especially <laughs> you know especially as the window of things that i like does tend to shrink cuz either the writers that i like are getting canceled cuz you know, rightfully so, because they did awful things, or because I, on the other end, there are just fewer and fewer writers in the modern era that I don't necessarily vibe with quite as much. I, I find that I have to make a concerted effort to read newer writers, but, you know, left to my like own James devices. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Our yeah. Last episode. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, left to my own devices, I, I could definitely see myself you know if we fast forward to a future and to a universe where this podcast doesn't exist i could definitely see myself just being just a gnarled old man who just enjoys <laughs> my 90s comics my 80s 
eighties, nineties, two thousands comics, um, and and you know, talk and maybe some twenty tens. While I talk about how that was peak fiction, everything. <laughs> Everything since has just been trash. <laughs> I would hate to meet that version of myself. <laughs> I feel like that's the version of yourself that would look back at, I don't know, just what's a random 2000s comic you like? A random 2000s comic I like? Yeah, oh, tell me. Just gosh. give me a name. Why the Last Inhuman. Man? Inhumans. Okay. Why the last okay. okay. Yeah, you... I could imagine that version of yourself going around saying, man, why the last man, ex machina, inhumans, those books are goaded, bro. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Come at me. Try to prove me wrong. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. But, yeah, your your uh, self-reflection has, has a... Uh, uh, you know, forced me to to try to meet you where you're at as well. So <laughs> I'm definitely trying to do better about that. Funny thing is, is that Miyazaki himself, when he was making Shuna's Journey, he was about 40 years old. He was born in 1941. Mm-hmm. He probably started working on this in the early 80s, and it came out in 83. So it's not like he was technically a young man at the time either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did just have a thought though. Uh, in terms of newer comics, even though maybe there aren't writers that I can vibe with on the same level that I did when I was still young and full of optimism and you know, <laughs> vibrant youth and energy, but I think maybe the one place that I can connect to modern creators is definitely in the art well you know especially for comics because mm-hmm. there are mm-hmm. a lot of current artists that i do enjoy so yeah you know i won't completely fade into obsolescence <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> i agree with that well, i'll always i'll always be able to have like some some toehold in 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 comics in in current comics oh actually you know what you just made me think of you made me think of someone uh, I met fairly recently, and oh, this is gonna be good. <laughs> no, no, he he's a friend. He's a friend. So okay, okay, okay. I'm not gonna say anything disrespectful. I don't think okay, I'm gonna okay. be disrespecting him. But but he was telling me he got into comics a few years ago, and he's a bit younger than us too. But he was telling me he had a hard time getting into older stuff because of the art and the way that it looked. Mm-hmm. And I. I th- I don't remember exactly if I asked him for some examples of old art that he wasn't into, but I, I feel like he, I named a few things and there were things that were, you know, like 15, 20 years old, old and stuff that we really enjoy. And I I think he pointed to those as examples of things that he couldn't really look at because of the visuals. I mean, do you feel old Albert? You feel old? <laughs> uh, not especially. Like I, I think there are some artists that I look at who are older than than me, and I I think their work is timeless and classic. So, yeah, I, I don't I don't think that you know why though. It's because like we're are... comic book sickos, man. 
<laughs> we're able to find and appreciate the craftsmanship in comics from the 50s, mm. 40s even. Yeah, yeah. Well, are you committed to comics or are you, or not? Is you or ain't you? <laughs> if you're only into comics from the current period, then you're not really into comics. You're just into what's hot. <laughs> what's yeah, now. exactly. Exactly. You're not, you're not truly committed to anything. <laughs> Your life has no meaning. You have no value. <laughs> we are the gatekeepers I mean, of good taste. Yeah. Maybe you your must parents pay homage think... to the things that we like, or you'll never be a true <laughs> fan of comics. Yeah, maybe your parents think that you add value to their lives, but that doesn't mean anything to me. <laughs> <laughs> but I am curious what your friend considers good art. Like, I, I find I'm hard pressed to imagine that there's stuff in the 2000s period that would be considered like what john cassidy brian hitch yeah Heck. actually there are quite a few people nowadays younger readers who who do look at a john cassidy comic from that period or like brian hitch's ultimates or something and they look at that as something pretty dated uh, i don't know i don't know i find it hard to um, hard to picture what about it makes it dated but maybe that's because i'm older and I, that's my blind spot, but I, I would have to hear a pretty compelling argument from their end to, to even concede that. <laughs> Just yeah, you know, like if you looked at like Alan Davis's art from you know the '80s or or '90s or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Like you can look at that and you can still say that that's good. And yeah, let's let's say that Brian Hitch comes from that school of Alan Davis art. Like, is there really that much of a difference? Like, I think, I think there's definitely an evolution between those two two works of art. But, I mean, unless unless people don't like Alan Davis's art either, then then I don't know what to tell you. I mean, I feel like people who think that Brian Hitch is dated would look at Alan Davis and call his work ancient. Yeah, yeah. But, but that's I think... the thing. That's why. I'd have to ask, like, what is it that they do like then just as a point of comparison? Because you're telling me there's you're telling me there's nothing from our period of comics that's that is aesthetically appealing. I mean, you're there might me... be a few there might be a few <laughs> exceptions here and there. But yeah. generally speaking, I think he he tends not to be interested in older comics uh, so, like, with, even if I uh, recommend indisputable classics or something like like Watchmen, that'll be yeah. hard for him because it, the art, you know, he, he thinks Dave Gibbons' art just looks too old. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I just... Uh... You give up? I don't know if I give up, but <laughs> I'm resigned to it. I'm resigned to the answer that I got. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that's why nowadays Marvel and DC have these specific styles that they kind of go to over and over. Like we were talking about it um, when we were talking about the Namor comic a couple episodes ago. 
like Pascal Ferry, he's an older guy who's been around since the late 90s or even mid 90s, but his style kind of foreshadowed the current house style that Marvel and DC both seem to like, which is a lot of that sort of Italian and Spanish uh, influenced artwork. So that kind of style of drawing um, that you see in a lot of their books now, that's probably like the main kind of style of comic book art that a lot of more recent fans are into. Like that's the kind of stuff that looks good to them and sells, hence why Marvel and DC continue to stick to that kind of house style. Well, um, I guess I can't wait till your friend begins to feel old and obsolete. <laughs> yeah, there we go. That's, maybe maybe that's he'll start his own podcast things. at that point. Yeah, yeah. And then he'll have to live with the fact that no people don't like his taste because it's dated. Yeah. <laughs> no disrespect. <laughs> if you're listening to our podcast, no disrespect. But perhaps you'll learn a little bit of compassion and empathy. <laughs> are there any other themes or ideas in Shuna's journey that stood out to you or that you want to discuss i feel like we touched on mostly everything uh i i don't know i i will say that one of the things that jumped out at me in particular about this yeah is as he's going on his journey, as Shuna is going on his journey, there were points in times where he encounters these other human beings. And I was a little surprised at how, I guess, cruel these people were to one another. You and, surprised by human depravity? Uh, I was surprised at human depravity as it's portrayed in a Miyazaki work of fiction. Okay. If this okay. was, you know, real life, then, you know, it's it's a Monday. <laughs> <laughs> big deal. <laughs> what's what's the big, right? Right, but, right. Yeah, there's it, it reminded me of another work and, and it's The Road by Cormac McCarthy and I think there are similarities that exist there. Um, the similarities being that when we get to, when we, especially when we start telling stories about dystopian futures and the end of the world, a lot of the times, you know, even in something like Walking Dead, we see this where uh, human cruelty, like it, it, it begins when circumstances get dire, that's when real human nature is revealed and mm -hmm. it speaks volumes of what we're actually like because you know one could i guess one could argue that even when we have all of the resources at our disposal it still seems like theoretically we should have no reason to be cruel to one another because there should be no reason to want or need but even under circumstances where we do have everything that we could need we're still able to be dicks to one another so <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah that being said uh yeah he when he does run into other human beings it's always it's rarely ever good because the first group of 
the first time he meets this other human being, he's looking for shelter and the woman tries to lure <laughs> him in and he begins to notice that there are these crunching sounds on the ground and he realizes that they are bones and he is almost most certainly being led to his death. Um, as time goes on, he begins to see these caravans and he realizes Again, humans have nothing left to trade, and the only way that they're able to get food is by uh, trading, trading the slaves. only resource that they have left, slaves, human beings. So it's time and time again, it's just all kinds of cruelties and dangers, but they're all coming from other people. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. so I did think that that was kind of interesting, and that totally was something that made me think of the road by Cormac McCarthy where so much of that story was about it was another story where the main characters just spent so much of their time journeying from one place to another and mm -hmm. uh it really didn't seem like there was any real goal in in that story I, I i think the difference here is in in shuna's journey he still has the goal of achieving that grain because the grain the point of the grain is that this could be the thing that saves us right mm -hmm. um but in the road it, it almost feels like they're just wandering aimlessly because they're just trying to stay one step ahead of the catastrophe and wherever they go they are just avoiding the threats of other people as well. So it's another story that really just focuses on the journeying, the traveling aspect uh, more than the end goal, because realistically speaking, it's really hard to envision what the end goal is when the world is dying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that was something that really jumped out at me about this book um that's I guess a the other really thing... good point because there's a contrast when he enters the realm the realm of the god folk it's yeah yeah even though the gods are the ones that are taking these people taking these people who are being traded there's something obviously cruel about that but when he's actually just in the realm of the gods there are these other creatures there and he's surrounded by the the weird creatures but it's like their version of nature right and it's a it's drawn with this specific kind of grace and beauty and peacefulness, even though there are like big creatures that look kind of scary. They don't really threaten him or anything yeah. like that. So it's a big yeah. contrast to him being in human society. <laughs> right, exactly. And even the coloring, uh, like every element of that world just seems to contrast the world of man, which is just brown and dirt-like and ugly. <laughs> and mm -hmm. then when he goes to the land of the gods, it's all lush and green. And even though he's surrounded by these homunculi-looking creatures or these giant insects, yeah, no yeah. one really takes notice of him. No one really... It isn't until you know he touches the grain that he mm -hmm. draws their ire. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But... But yeah, speaking of these, you know, the godlands and the the creatures that inhabit their world, uh, I I did appreciate that they don't ever really explain what 
these gods are these these beings are like i'm not even entirely clear because they're the ones taking these human beings and it looks i think they're like transforming them or something Mm -hmm. like i wasn't entirely clear on it but even without that knowledge it's not something that i necessarily needed to have explained to me i didn't feel that it was so integral to what i was reading that by not having it i felt robbed of some sort of experience (laughs) um i do think that there might be a type of reader out there who does feel that way Mm -hmm. I, i don't know what to do for that person um okay (laughs) yeah (laughs) but i think you can enjoy the book in spite of that i I think you should be able to enjoy the book in spite of that yeah i hope you enjoy the book in spite of that yeah i hope so too yeah yeah what did you think about the characters of thea uh i feel like a lot of the times in in Miyazaki films, we kind of see these, I don't know if like side character is the right word, but I I guess a supporting cast member. Right. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, maybe someone could say that they didn't really provide too much character for her, other than the fact that she is a slave girl Maybe you could say that she's got some ingenuity. She's got some resourcefulness. She's got uh, kindness and kindness and uh, commitment. Uh, what's perseverance, right? Um, so maybe you could say these things about her. But even their interactions, it doesn't necessarily feel like you have so much interaction between Thea and Shuna that you can say that on the surface it feels like you're getting a lot to to work with in terms of trying to understand the character but at the same time i think the work again miyazaki is just so reserved about his dialogue that i don't think having a lot of scenes of interaction or communication between the two characters is is necessary you know like mm-hmm. yeah i you know again just to kind of pick at a imaginary straw man that exists out there who might say oh you know why doesn't this why doesn't thea have more to say why why don't they show more scenes of her so that we can you know know her right but i think I feel like we do get enough, though. Like, we do get a good sense of who she is just from the scenes that we do have. Exactly. If you're paying attention, even even if words aren't being said, if you're just kind of observing beyond that, I think we're still getting a lot, right? Yeah. Uh, You you get a sense of who she is through her actions, um, through, you know, her behavior, like, especially towards the end when the perspective of the story switches to her and you know she as a young girl goes to this land in the north and she finds a home with this old lady and because she's the oldest i guess sister she was Mm -hmm. the other girl's sister right so because she's the oldest sister she does everything that she needs to do in order to survive she takes up with this old lady she lives with her she 
does errands around her uh, residence. And, you know, when Shuna finally does show up, he's lost his memory and he's little more than a wild beast in that he doesn't, he can't even really take care of himself. So she begins to take things. uh, She begins to take care of him as well as her duties to this old woman. And she even begins to sneak food to him. She even begins to cut her own rations so that she can feed him and her. And, you know, so much of that is so telling of her character and her personality and just that sense of, uh, like I said, perseverance that she has. So Yeah. 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 I think one of the uh, things like, that struck me from her very first appearance in the story was her dignity because there's that scene in the city where Shuna first finds her and her sister and they're chained up by a slaver and Shuna is is thinking of trading his rifle in exchange to free them but yeah she stands up and she says don't if you get rid of your weapon, they'll kidnap you too before you know it. Also, we're not royalty or anything, but we don't want to be bought, not even by you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Saying that definitely gives her a strong sense of characterization. You know, like that's yeah. that's some real dignified stuff to to have pride in her own self and agency as a person, even though she's chained up. She doesn't want to be bought, not even by someone who's trying to help her. Yeah, yeah. Like that that definitely yeah. jumped out at me. And then like later on, when Shuna ends up freeing her from that caravan thing and they run off, uh, he lets them take uh the Yakul thing and then she's she and her sister are gone from the story for a whole chapter until the end. And like you said, that la- last chapter is from her perspective and we get such a good amount of her own uh, personality and her kindness and taking care of of Shuna, who's lost his mind, and just doing all the things that she needed to do to survive, take care of her sister, and then take care of Shuna. In a way, you could really say that without her, uh, everything would have been for naught because Shuna wouldn't have been able to recover, and if she hadn't been there to help him. He would have just been yeah. like this mindless creature wandering around. But yeah. now that she found him, she, uh, you know, she had the the golden grain that that he had obtained, and then she's able to to plant that and then nurse Shuna back to health. And through the seeds that he brought, that she cultivated, they're able to basically save the people and then go back on this other journey back to his, his home. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Which is a story for another time, but you know, you could look at her as the, as kind of the savior of, of the story. If that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. She's absolutely not some wilting Lily, you know, that's there just for the illicit purpose of being saved. Right. Yeah. She and ends up I being think- the one who saves. Exactly, exactly. And you're absolutely right when you describe that scene where she talks about how even under the circumstances that she's in, she is she still has so much like you said dignity that she's willing to endure it 
even if it means being, you know, not being sold to someone who has good intentions. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, which is kind of refreshing for the time period that it was written for the 80s. I'm not saying that there were a lot of works that were, you know, portraying women in a certain way, but, you know, to, to, to people who think that you can't have these kinds of stories where, um, where the characters, where especially like women characters have that level of, you know, for just to say it again, but that level of agency in their situation and that level of impact on the overall uh, course of the story. Like this is a good example of how, you know, even stuff in that period, in in that early 80s period, was totally able to, Mm -hmm. you know, need uh, thread that needle where you can have a character who, who is in such dire circumstances, but still, isn't necessarily a victim right yeah exactly she's another great example of sort of the prototypical miyazaki strong female heroine because he does have a lot of characters in his movies that are younger or maybe teenage girls who act in a very heroic and respectable manner and you know they're not like you're like you said, you're shrinking violets or or anything like that. They're just really uh, well-crafted, thoughtful characters. Yeah. Well, did you have anything else or any other thoughts that you wanted to share with our good listeners? I guess one thing that I also appreciated about the book is the essay at the end, the essay by the translator. I feel like he makes quite a few good comparisons to the various things in Miyazaki's filmography that may have been influenced by Shuna's journey. So I thought that was pretty cool. I think if you've watched a lot of Miyazaki films, his essay at the end there will be pretty intriguing stuff. So it's a good thing to read if you if you're looking for more analysis Mm. how about you any other final thoughts Mm, not so much i I feel like we've said everything that we've needed to say about it and if it isn't clear i guess i'll say that now it's it's a good book i recommend Mm -hmm. it Mm -hmm. glad that it came out i'm glad that we both got a copy and that we were able to review it for this episode um it took such a long time for it to be translated into English. So when it did come out, it just felt like, you know, a treat. Yeah. And I was, I do not feel like my faith was misplaced uh, when it, I bought it finally and finally got to read it. I was deeply appreciative of it. Well said. Yeah. This is good stuff. We recommend it. It's got the yeah. between the gutters seal of approval. <laughs> the golden gutter baby the golden gutter <laughs> we should make that a recurring bit okay okay you get four golden gutters on this <laughs> uh, all right well i guess i'm kind of curious for people who have read this 
or who want to read something similar to this or experience something similar to this, is there anything that you would recommend to them? Man, this was kind of a tough one. I was trying to think of what I would recommend. Obviously, the the ones that immediately come to the forefront of my mind are just Miyazaki's movies because you could watch any one of those and most of them would give you kind of similar vibes and feelings as Shuna's journey. And I think I would also go so far as to say watching more of his movies would enhance your enjoyment of this book just because then you're seeing more of his interests, you know, kind of recur in different works and seeing those framed in various contexts is pretty interesting and engaging especially if you're the kind of person who i guess appreciates the artist and likes to find out you know i guess like seeing the different ways that a creator plays with certain themes especially themes that repeat in his various works so yeah I'd, I'd say any of his movies would be good but as we mentioned Nasca is probably the one that bears a lot of similarities to Shuna's journey um, but other than that the comic that came to mind I was trying to think of other comics about journeys and even though I'm sure there are quite a few like it was hard for me to think of one that that was kind of along similar lines as Shuna's journey. So the, the thing that I finally ended up thinking about was The Walking Man by Jiro Taniguchi. And this is a manga that's essentially a bunch of vignettes or short stories about a regular middle-aged man who just goes for walks in his neighborhood. So it's very down-to-earth. A lot of the stories don't have dialogue it's just peaceful shots of a man walking through his neighborhood so it could be him you know walking through walking to the park and just observing the world around him uh there's one story that's about him walking through his neighborhood after a heavy rain the previous day so he's looking at puddles and the other little critters that come out after it rains so it's very poetic it's not necessarily epic in the sense that something like Shuna's journey is more like an epic kind of story or a literal kind of quest. The Walking Man is more about appreciating the journey that you go on. You know, it's not about the destination necessarily. It's it's more about taking the time to slow down and look at the things around you. And that's one of the things I did enjoy about Shuna's journey. Those especially those scenes of Shuna traveling from one place to another and just seeing the sights that he's seeing, seeing the backgrounds and seeing the landscapes. Like those are the kind of things that I really vibe with and enjoy. So The Walking Man captures those same kinds of vibes for me. Nice, man. Yeah. What, what about I, you, man? Well, I, I was going to add to your thought, but I was going to say that I really... I really appreciated those same elements as well. Uh, the fact that so much of the book takes the time to just really show the contemplative act of going from a place 
from one place to another place, right? And mm -hmm. we were talking prior to this, uh, to this, to recording this episode, and it it's akin to people who play video games who just fast travel everywhere, and <laughs> you know, there's I get it to some degree where when you play a video game there's a part of you that just wants to get to the next thing so that you can beat it but you there's so much that you miss by not just traversing the land routes that you can play i think of something like uh legend of zelda um ocarina of time that's the thing i think of and for the most part you can walk from one location to another you cross hyrule field and even later in the gar game when you get a horse it's kind of fun just taking that horse from place to place and uh being able to see the sights and take it all in but once you kind of learn the the flute notes you just kind of magically go from place to place like imagine if you had that right at the beginning of the game how how much you would lose in the overall experience of it and mm -hmm. and i feel like that's the thing about so many people now is so many people would have that perspective on not just video games but just how they pursue their entertainment which is i just need to get to the next thing and uh yeah you know you learn to I guess my recommendation to you listeners and to you readers is uh, learn to take the time to appreciate things and uh, you might find the beauty of things that you didn't notice before. So that being said, the one thing that I would recommend that the first thing that popped into my mind after reading this book, and it's not another book, it's not another comic, but I would recommend the game skyrim so nice. uh, that's a game where <laughs> so much of it is centered around you exploring the the countryside of the world and you know it's a fantasy adventure but there's so much time spent just crossing valleys crossing creeks and streams and rivers so trying to climb mountains trying to climb mountains, meeting various random characters, uh, you know, the occasional wolf fight or just discovering random caves. Mm -hmm. Like there's a lot of fun to be had there. So beautiful landscapes. Beautiful landscape, beautiful scenery. So my recommendation is Skyrim the game, but also not to not to fast travel if you play the game. <laughs> just turn it into a walking it. simulator, a hiking exactly. simulator. Exactly. <laughs> um, other than that, the other thing that I'd recommend is I talked about it in the episode a little, but The Road by Cormac McCarthy. I just think that they had very similar vibes, very similar intentions. Perhaps The Road wasn't wasn't so much about uh, environmental catastrophe or nature, but I do think that the element of just traveling from place to place and the element of, uh, you know, surviving in a world where other human beings are your greatest threat. Uh, I think those are elements of the road that are comparable to what I read in Shuna's journey. So there we go. 
Nice. Yeah, The Road is something I haven't read, but it's just I've heard plenty about it, and I've always wanted to read it, just never got around to it. But one of these days, I'm going to try to, man. Yeah, yeah. It's a good book, man. And, you know, I think Cormac McCarthy might have died this past year, from what I believe. So not that that's the thing that makes it, uh, you know, uh, a thing that you have to read right now. But, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, I just checked. He just died. Yeah. I didn't yeah, I didn't so. even realize that. Dang. Yeah. I didn't even realize he was that old. He was eighty nine. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. He's uh he had a long, well lived life and he produced and created a lot of great works of art and works yeah. of literature. Yeah. All right. Well oh, what are we gonna say? Oh nothing. I was just murmuring. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> hit us with your sweet, sweet murmurs, your murms. Mm. Mm, 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 mm. Okay, I don't like that. I, I, I instantly regretted. You asked I for it, and I gave it to you, Albert. It. Yes, exactly. And, and you shall receive, but be yeah. And I did not like that. Uh, this episode's sponsor is feeling uncomfortable. Shankadanka. <laughs> Shankadanka. What are you going to say? I was asking if you were wearing your headphones right about now. I was. I've been wearing my headphones this whole time. So, you know, my nethers definitely uh, cringed. Yeah, my murmurs <laughs> reached deep within your earlobes. Yes, yes. Anyways, <laughs> if anyone has anything to say, if they have any questions or if they'd want to contribute to the, our conversation, feel free to hit us up at between the gutters podcast at gmail.com or you can DM us at between the gutters. You can shoot us an X. You can, you know, exhibit us at, on X. Um, what's Twitter? I don't know what Twitter is. Was that ever a thing? I mean, I'm, I'm leaning hard into the future because I'm relevant. So, Twitter's not the future. X is. X is the everything app. You're going to be able to tweet. Not tweet. You're going to be able to X. (laughs) You're going to be able to pay your bills. (laughs) I know. I'm living in the past. What am I? (laughs) Some old man. Uh, Yeah. So you can hit us up on X uh, uh, between the gutters. And uh, we're on threads as well. You can thread our needle. That's gross. I didn't like that. (laughs) But <laughs> you can shoot us a message on threads and uh yeah if you happen to be listening to us on whatever platform you're listening to us on if you could give us a high rating highest that we think we deserve we would appreciate it and you know share like subscribe all that stuff that people always make you do when you're uh when we're trying to get our 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 episodes out there into the world albert if you were trying True. to come across as younger and more relevant and reach a more hip crowd, would you ever start a TikTok account? Uh, I forget. I might have already created one for us at Between the Gutters, just, oh. just so no one steals the name. That's good. Smart. Well, I don't know that I did, though. I, I could oh, just okay. be... I could have just remembered... Because I, I think I meant to do it, I don't remember if I followed through on it. (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, so close enough. Yeah, uh, yeah. Wanting <laughs> to do it is this is practically doing it, right? Yeah, exactly. Knowing <laughs> yeah. is half the battle. So yeah, it's wanting yeah, to do yeah. something. That's half the battle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's <laughs> totally totally healthy thinking. <laughs> Anyways, um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, do you think we should do a TikTok? Make a TikTok? I don't know. Like, if there was a way for us to put our episodes up with as little work as possible that doesn't require us actually making TikToks. Like if I could just transfer like a reel over to a TikTok or something, then maybe, I don't know. I don't know enough about TikTok or how it works, but. I know enough about myself to know that I don't like TikTok. Oh yeah, I definitely know that. (laughs) I hate TikTok. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. You get it. <laughs> and the and I I hate the idea that it makes it sound like it's a it's a cuz I'm an old person sort of thing. Oh, I don't but... even care. I'm an old person, dude. I'm a curmudgeon, dude. All those things that the young people like, screw that. <laughs> I just think it's yeah, I just think it's dumb and it's been proven to like just ruin people's minds. So, yeah. You know, I'm not I'm not about that. All right. Thanks so, for yeah, listening, follow everybody. Us on <laughs> yeah, follow us on our. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. This is Between the Gutters signing off. Next week, we will be covering a comic that came out in 2023. The trade paperback just came out a few weeks ago in late December. But the comic is Immortal Sergeant by Joe Kelly and Ken Mura. So. Peep that, and yeah, we will be back. Peace. Bye, everyone.